You are now listening to the August 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and It's Time to Pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Welcome to Walking Our Talk. We're going to be talking today about SMART goals. So that's whether you're married or not married. We're just talking about how to make goals that are specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-sensitive. So last time, Polly, my wife Polly is in the studio. Hello. Hello. <laughs> just want her to be able to say hi. And so we, we deal, dealt with specific goals, um, needing to make goals that are clear and specific. Otherwise, we're not focused enough. And so we need to ask questions like, what do I want to accomplish? Why is the goal important? Who is involved? Where is it located? And which resources do I have to achieve them? And then the second part we talked about was measurable goals. How much? How many? How will I know when it's accomplished? So our third section here is achievable. So there are a lot of times people are thinking about a goal they have, but it's in no, no way achievable. <laughs> if I said that I'm going to go play Tiger Woods at Pebble Beach, and I said, we're going to bet $1,000 if I can win, I think it would be a pretty good bet the Tiger's going to beat me pretty handily. <laughs> if so, you even get or, to play with Yeah, them. right. So... <laughs> You know, it, it needs to be something that's within the realm of possibility, although people talk about hairy, audacious goals, hag, goals that you can't achieve. And, of course, the Word of God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him. He will direct your path. So it's a good thing to pray and ask God, what are the goals that you want me to achieve and to make it bigger than what you can do so you know it's him who's doing it, but not to bite off something that is just totally just not uh, advisable. I remember when I was in college and I played golf and I thought, you know, someday I could join the tour. And I wrote a pro golfer and the pro golfer wrote back and said, I hate to be rain on your parade, but if you're not winning every single tournament in your state, then don't even think about becoming a pro, which totally crushed my <laughs> fantasy. Even though you have a beautiful swing and a great drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but he was right. I mean, you know, uh, I would have to do a lot more to be able to do that, to achieve that goal. So your goal needs to be realistic, attainable to be successful. In other words, it should stretch your abilities but still remain possible. When you set an achievable goal, you may be able to identify previously overlooked opportunities or resources that can bring you closer to that. Well, I think if you set an achievable goal, when you achieve that goal, then you can set your next goal 
which now becomes more achievable than if you had set that goal from the beginning. So you, you set your goals in increments. Right. So it's the proverbial, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Right, right. So you take small increments and then you can always uh, increase them. Let's talk about how that may have worked out in some things in our own marriage and life. Uh, what are a couple of things that we knew were achievable but we weren't there yet? I mean, there are vacations that we've taken. For instance, I wanted to take you on a really nice vacation, but I wasn't sure how it was going to happen. And I had somebody who had discount tickets to Hawaii, uh, another person who had the ability to put us up in a beautiful condo that we normally would never be able to stay in, and it was for free. We didn't even have to pay for it. And I played on a pro cor golf course that I, you know, just never uh, thought we could do. And so, you know, that was... I was able to see that goal happen. And, you know, for somebody who doesn't play golf, that might not be a great thing. Or maybe you don't want to go to Hawaii. That's fine. But um, other things that have happened. Well, I think um, one thing that I think of uh, it has to do with the nature of our relationship and the fact that we're we're pretty opposite in the way we approach certain things. You've noticed that? <laughs> And I'm uncomfortable with a lot of conflict because I, I tend to be, in my personality, a peacemaker. But we ended up, it seemed to me, in a lot of arguments. And I wanted to have more peace in our relationship. But to have that as a goal to never have an argument again it, or to never fight. Pretty unrealistic, yeah, is it? Yeah, it's not realistic. You might want to manage the conflict <laughs> instead of just say we're not going to have any conflict. Right. To get some, uh, to learn some communication skills that allowed us to talk about difficult issues in a more civil, workable manner was an achievable goal, was something that we could do, was to learn some skills that would allow us to talk about things And in order better. to do that, we had to take a number of hours of training. We had to spend some money, and we had to want it enough to make that time in our schedule to learn those things over, for us, that was a three-month period. Right. But then we had the goal of uh, getting trained ourselves to help other people learn how to communicate with each other because we, we were motivated to do that because we saw how well the skills were working for us. Right. So, again, we had to set the goal, which involved coming up with the money to do the training and <laughs> setting aside the time and going through a process that took us uh, a couple of years to accomplish, but we went through the training, we did supervised uh, workshops, and then we did... We and did we've done them for learn. We, we've been teaching 40 years. those workshops for a <laughs> long time now, but um, but that involved setting the goal together and agreeing together. This was something that we wanted to do as a couple. Right. And I, I think many couples just don't, they just don't think of 
making goals or looking ahead in their marriage, in their family, in a lot of times it all revolves around the work and the husband and monetary stuff. And I would just encourage you to think about making some smart goals for your marriage, for your personal life. And sometimes you need to do something alone before you do it with your partner. And and there are certain things that will be comfortable, and there are other things that may not be so comfortable. I mean, we... Um, I wanted Polly to learn how to play golf because it was just a big part of my life uh, when we got married, and I was able to teach her, and we had a pro that helped her, and uh, she liked it for a while, but you know, then she had health issues with her MS, and so she got tired quicker, and it just wasn't going to work, but for a time, we used to spend... Uh, you certainly not as much time as me, but we would do something playing golf that we would walk and talk and enjoy a beautiful time together for, and you would go for nine holes and I would go for 18. <laughs> and, but so we, we had to adjust our, the, the goals, the achievability of it. Right. Uh, the thing about golf is that it's like going for a long walk. At least it was back then before we were hopping into a golf cart and bouncing all over a golf course in a golf cart. But in the early days, just going for a walk, going between holes and talking, I I loved that aspect mm -hmm. of playing golf more than hitting the ball itself. Right, so now <laughs> we just go for long walks so and we, we forget walk. the golf. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All right, so then number four out of the specific, measurable, achievable, now we have relevant. Uh, this step is about ensuring that your goal matters to you and that it also aligns with other relevant goals. We need support and assistance, and I think people forget. I mean, that's why somebody hires a trainer to help them in their physical exercise. You go to the gym in order to work out, and you have somebody who's been there, done that, and helps you get beyond where you could get physically. And there is not, I don't know of any pro player uh, in any sport that doesn't have some kind of coach. And those, I remember some ice skaters uh, who decided not to have a coach and their, their ability to achieve went down because they didn't have objective input and somebody to help them with their plan for workout and to be able to see from the outside what they're doing and how they could make it better. And so when you start making these goals, you need to draw upon the resources of others that have been there and done it and can help encourage you to keep on the path. Well, and to think about what does this have to do with the rest of your life? Mm. And for me to set a goal for myself at, at this point in my life that, like, I want to become a mountain climber or I want to... Very small mountains, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or I want to become a fashion designer. And um, when it... It doesn't have anything to do with the the rest of our life together. Um, it would be taking me in a different direction than the right, way we've been going all our lives. And your skill and abilities, too. Right. So um, 
if I'm going to make a goal for myself at this point in my life, I, I need to assess what are, what are the things that I already do well. For instance, it, for me, it has to do with editing. I love words. I love language. I, <laughs> I, love, I love punctuation, I must confess. Commas and periods and dashes and semicolons. Mm, I want to get goodness. them all in the right place. I want the words that are written on the page to express what is in the writer's head the very best they possibly can. So for me to set goals for myself that have to do with editing projects that are going to help people um, as Christians, help them in their Christian growth, help them in their ministry to reach more people by having the best book they possibly can— those are goals that I can set for myself to um, that. Well, they're relevant to your life because of where you've been, what you've done, and that sort of thing. So we're just saying make them relevant. So relevant, a relevant goal can answer yes to questions like, does this seem worthwhile? Is this the right time? So it may be worthwhile, but it's not the right time. Maybe you have kids young kids and you want to spend time with them, but you also want a career. And we know many uh, women who, they're gifted people in work, but they have a very um, tense relationship between the skill of work that they have and wanting a goal of raising three kids that are all under the age of 10. And um, you know, some people can balance and do it, but many have a hard time with that. So maybe I need to wait until the kids get to be of high school age where they're gone most of the day anyway, and then I can, you know, launch in more into a career. Um, so is it the right time? Does this match uh, our other efforts and needs? In other words, if it's in direct conflict uh, with some of the other things you're trying to do and you keep bumping up against that and it becomes so difficult that uh, it doesn't mesh with the rest of your life and needs, then maybe you need to change your goal. Am I the right person to reach this goal? So I may have a great goal, but I'm not the one to do it. And then is it applicable in the current socioeconomic environment that I'm in? So, you know, if I'm trying to make a million dollars, but I keep only making 50000 then, you know, maybe your goal in life shouldn't be to be a millionaire. Yeah, or maybe if we have a lot of debt and I want to start a business, um, we need to get our debt paid off before we start accumulating more debt. So is it relevant to your life? So we've talked about being specific being measurable, achievable, relevant. And then the next one is, to me, the really important one, time sensitive. Every goal needs to have a target date so that you have a deadline to focus and uh, have something to work toward. So um, putting it on the calendar, being specific, that's one of the catches that many couples, when they're saying, we want to have a date night, and I'll go, when? I don't know. We just want a date night. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, but tell me the time on your calendar. What day, what night, what afternoon can you do it? Uh, 
And again, if it doesn't get on your measurable calendar, it probably will never be measured. And so um, trying to get it time sensitive and realistic about that time. You know, what can I do in the next six months from now? Uh, what can I do in the next six weeks from now? What can I do today? So one of the things we try and do is twice a year get away for three days by ourselves. And it happens to coincide usually with our, a birthday of mine and a, our anniversary, which we both have and share in. So <laughs> <laughs> we put that on the calendar. And uh, part of our calendar is we want to spend a week with our extended family at Thanksgiving. And so other people are doing all kinds of things. We've chosen for 30 years or more to spend time with our extended family. And we fly to Florida and we have a place that is there that we stay and sometimes 22 people, 25. I think it's going to be like 26 people this year. But I'm just saying it's on the calendar already. And then if we want to change, we can we could cancel or whatever, but at least it's already there. So my encouragement is make it time sensitive. There are daily things, weekly, monthly. There are quarterly things. There are yearly things. And maybe like every seven years, if you're in a workplace or in ministry, it's really important to get a sabbatical. And I've written a little booklet on that. Feel free to uh, write us or, or go to our website, walkandtalk, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K dot org, walkandtalk.org, if you want something about a sabbatical. But it needs to be time sensitive. And I just think whatever form of calendar, whether it's a physical one or it's a computer. And then, you know, we live in a techno technological society where we can make alarms. There are many times in a counseling setting, I will put an alarm 10 minutes before I'm supposed to stop and it will ring so both people hear it. And uh, because I get so into <laughs> the counseling situation, I forget what time it is. And yet I need to be circumspect with their time and my time. And so I put something external to make it time sensitive, an alarm that helps me deal with that. Any, what about you, Polly? Because you say time is a warp. Well, when we first started doing this, as I said, to think about a five-year goal or a 10-year goal it seemed so foggy. To me, it was like looking out into a fog, into a mist, and trying to think of uh, where do I want to be down the line in the future. And I, I just couldn't even imagine that. And I think part of that has to do with fear. I think we have to face our fears that we're not going to be able to accomplish it, or so many things could p go wrong that why should we bother trying to plan something when it's all going to blow up in our mm. faces anyway? A and it, that is part of my being the, the sort of negative, melancholy person and you being the positive, oh, we can do this. Well, right. you know, and... And that's why it's helpful to have somebody outside yourself that believes in you, does believe this goal is achievable, measurable, and within within your scope of doing it and have a cheerleader on the right. outside Sometimes helping. Sometimes it helps to hear somebody say, wow, you really helped me when you did this. Mm -hmm. Or every time you do this, 
I am so encouraged or I, I love to see you do this because you do it so well. Sometimes we don't have that ability to assess ourselves correctly and to know what we're actually capable of doing. So it helps to have somebody say, yeah, that's, that's great. You should go for that. So whether you are Somebody said there are people that want to solve problems and there are people that want to set goals. So maybe you're not a goal setter. Maybe this whole um, smart goals thing, you know, you just go, oh, gosh, I can't think of anything I'd rather not do. But maybe you need to solve a problem and you still use the same specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time bound. But you're going to solve a problem. So there are people that say, I want to see the divorce rate go down. And so I'm going to counsel so many people. I'm going to make a training program to do this. Or cancer, that, you know, there's so much research on cancer and somebody wants to make a dent in the research of cancer. And so they say, I'm going to develop a golf tournament to give thousands of dollars to cancer research or whatever. So you may be somebody that has a problem that you want solved, and that's just as good as goal setting. So we hope this has been helpful. Please let us know if it's been helpful. Just email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at walkandtalk.org. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time where we're learning to walk our talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Taming the Tongue, Part 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Book of James, and James, of course, is one of the most practical books in all the Bible. It's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, it is like so practical. Everything in there is practical. Well, that's what James is. It is a very, very practical book. And so passage today, it gets really, really practical. So are you guys ready? You're not. I know you're not because of the topic that we are talking about. So in James chapter 3, James broaches a topic that is really practical and really relevant to all of us. And that is, brace yourself, taming the tongue. Okay, now are you ready? Yeah, not so much anymore, huh? Yeah, taming our tongues, managing our mouths. So is for the next two Sundays, not just today, but next Sunday, because there's such a big passage on it, we're going to be on this topic of taming the tongue for the next two Sundays. Now, all of us in here know the great damage that can occur when we use our words carelessly, right? We've all said things that have hurt other people. And likewise, we've all been on the receiving end of words that have hurt. I would bet you every single person in this room can remember something that was said mean to them on a playground as a kid. I bet you we all can think of at least one thing that was said to us on the playground, maybe at school, maybe it was even in our own home, where we're still carrying with it that with us to this day. I do. I know. I remember some of those mean things that were directed at me as a kid, and I still carry them today. And what scares me is I was just as brutal giving it out. And so there are people probably sitting all over the United States and world thinking, you know, uh, literally that they're carrying the burdens of careless words that I spoke to them many, many years ago. Of course, we teach our kids, say it with me, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's the biggest lie ever. It is the biggest lie ever. That is not true. The fact is words hurt and they hurt bad. The tongue can be used for immeasurably more damage than we give it credit for. And that is perhaps why James speaks with such conviction when it comes to this topic. So strap yourselves in, brace yourselves because it's going to be a wild ride. Now, needless to say, it is God's expectation that the person who has a transformed heart has a transformed tongue, right? We say we have a transformed heart. You would expect to see it in a transformed tongue. You know, what's really interesting is that James's older brother, Jesus, Jesus was his older half-brother. What is really interesting is that according to Jesus, the tongue is an accurate indicator of the state of a person's heart. In Luke, it says this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, if you want to know the state of a person's heart, just listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth. Listen to how they are managing their mouth. Listen how they are using their tongues. And that is why Jesus said that the persons, that a person's tongue will either justify them or convict them on judgment day. Do you ever read this passage and wonder what in the world it's talking about? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. See, on judgment day, your words will either prove that you had a heart that belonged to the Lord, or your words will prove that you had a heart that belonged to the world. It's just that simple. And so it is with great power and great precision that James tackles the topic of the tongue. And so it is on that note, church, it is my honor this morning to present to you the Word of God. We're going to read the whole passage, but we're only going to look at five verses today because that's all we have time to do. 
So church, James chapter three, beginning in verse one, here it is. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Ouch. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in his likeness. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. Church, I present to you the word of God this morning. So here's the deal. The whole point of the first five verses that we will be looking at today can be summed up in this way. Little things often have great power. So I want you to say that with me. Say it with me. Little things often have great power. And there is perhaps no greater example of this than the human tongue. The human tongue is tiny, right? Tiny little thing pops out of my mouth every once in a while. The tongue is tiny, but it can literally topple nations. It can literally defeat armies. And James understands this and makes this truth come alive with some really practical examples. Look at what he says. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So the first thing that James says is he talks about horses. Now, I know a thing or two about horses because I fell off one about 10 years ago. And now some of you are new to the church and don't know this story, but about 10 years ago, as an associate pastor at this church, I was riding a horse with my wife and I fell off and I dislocated this hip out the back. You dislocate out the front of the back, back's worse, it went out the back. And I was right down here on the corner behind Barrow's Pizza. So I dislocated my hip and I just am curious so that I'm not standing up here all by my lonesome. Anyone else in here want to admit that they've fallen off a horse? But here's the deal. Horses are truly incredible animals, and they're incredible for many different reasons, but one reason in particular is how powerful they are. That is incredible. Now, here's what's even more incredible. This majestic animal that can take a 205-pound man and run upwards of 30 miles an hour can be brought under complete control with just a tiny little bit placed on the top of its tongue. That's incredible. A bit in a horse's mouth controls the horse's head, which in turn directs the entire body. And you want to know what that's a powerful example of? It is a powerful example of little things often having great power. Again, say it with me. Little things often have great power. And there's no greater example of this than the human tongue. The second illustration that he gives is that of a ship. How many of you have been on a cruise before? Okay, I love cruises. Greatest 
oh, you want to go on one of the greatest vacations, go on a cruise if you've never been on a cruise. You get on the, I love cruises because you get on, you put your stuff in your room and then you just eat. You eat and float and you eat and float and then you get off the ship and you eat more and you get back on the ship and eat and float. It's just amazing. So here's the deal. Ships today are so massive that they would literally dwarf anything from any previous generation. Let me give you an example. That's an example of the Titanic in front of one of our modern day ships. Is that incredible? So you watch the movie Titanic and they make it to be this gigantic ship when in fact, by today's standard, it's not all that big. It's not all that big. But nevertheless, in biblical times, because this is when this passage was written, ships could still be very large. The ship that Paul took to Rome, for example, could have easily held upwards of 280 people. How do I know that? Because that's what it says in the book of Acts. When the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. And then it says, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. That's a good sized ship for 2000 years ago. That's impressive. And it perfectly illustrates James's point. Compared to the size of a ship, the rudder is a relatively tiny instrument. And yet this little tiny rudder, which you don't even really see, you don't even really see it. It's the same with the human tongue. You don't really see the human tongue all the time, right? You don't see it that much. You, you hear the results of it. You're all looking to see if you can see my tongue right now, right? Uh, I'm going to talk like this so you can't see it. And yet this tiny little rudder, which you can't even really see, is able to direct the entire ship in any direction at any time. You want to know what that's a powerful example of? It is a powerful example of how little things often have great power. That's exactly what that is. It is a perfect example of how little things often have great power. I kid you not. True story. I'm writing this sermon. Of course, you guys know I always work a couple weeks ahead. So I'm writing this sermon last week and I'm in my office. My door is open. And um, I'm literally right here at this point in the sermon. I kid you not because uh, God always provides seemingly when I need it. That's the God we follow. And this is a perfect example of that. I'm sitting at my desk writing this sermon. I'm right about here in the, and I hear voices being raised in the office. Now, when you work in a church, you don't often hear raised voices, right? You do on occasion, but usually it's praising God or something else. But I heard a voice being raised and it wasn't a good voice. It was in anger. And so I just was listening and it was, in fact, a young Corona student who had parked in our parking lot without a parking pass. And instead of towing him, we simply put a sticker on his window that said, hey, you know, you need to get a parking pass. And he came in and he found Mary Ellen right outside my office. If you guys know Mary Ellen, he found Mary Ellen right outside my office. And he said, don't put a sticker on my BMW ever again. And he was raising her voice and Mary Ellen's trying to reason with him. Now here's the deal. Corona, we let the Corona students park on our parking lot during the week. But Corona asks us to charge them a fee because if we don't, all of them will park over here, right? Because they charge a fee, they charge a parking pass. So, so they ask us, you charge a fee, uh, that'll balance it out and make it fair for everyone. So we, we charge a small fee and we, we don't tow anyone unless we have to. And we put stickers on cars. We give warning after warning after warning. And so we put a warning graciously on this young man's car, but he was furious. Now, you know how when you put a sticker on, you've ever gotten a sticker on your window, it sometimes can be hard to peel off. You know, you peel it off and it goes, and then part of the white stuff is still on there and you pull it again and you have to pull it off in phases. And then you have to spray it and get a razor blade and do all that stuff. Well, we kind of put those stickers on people's car and we're proud of it. <laughs> well, let me tell you, this young man was furious that we had put such a sticker on his window. Never mind that he wasn't gracious that we didn't tow his car. He was furious. And he said, I can't get this sticker off. It's so hard to get the sticker off. Don't put a sticker 
on the gray BMW. And of course, at this point, I closed my door and wished Mary Ellen the best. <laughs> I'm kidding. I jumped up out of my chair. I jumped out of my chair and I, ra- I went right up to that young man and I said, you will not talk to her in this tone. And you know what he said to me? He said, I'm not talking to you. And he proceeded to talk to her. I know you think at 205, I'd be more intimidating, but apparently I'm not. Mary Ellen, so he said that to me, he goes, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to her. He kept talking. Mary Ellen and I were like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he just, he knew the conversation was going to go nowhere. So he immediately just started walking out. And as he walked out, he said the same thing over and over again. Don't put a sticker on the gray BMW. Don't put a sticker on the gray BMW. He said it like four times as he walked out. Listen, Mary Ellen and I, more Mary Ellen than me, we felt like we had been verbally slapped in the face. You know what that is a powerful example of? It's a powerful example of how little things often have great power. This man used his tongue, walked into a church office, and he verbally beat up, was starting to beat up one of our staff. It's a powerful example of how little things often have great power. James's point is simple. As believers, if we are not careful, our tiny little itty bitty tongues can be used to cause a whole bunch of damage if we are not careful. So you want to know what I find really interesting about our passage? James starts this passage on taming the tongue by talking about teachers. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, what in the heck does that have to do with anything? That's an odd way to start a section on taming the tongue. So often when we think about being careless with the tongue, we think about using our tongue to say main things to other people. That is a great application. But the fact of the matter is that one of the great misuses of the tongue is when we use the tongue to teach error, theological error in particular. As a matter of fact, teaching theological error might be the greatest misuse of the tongue that there is. And that is perhaps why James gives this warning. He says, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Ouch. I do think with greater strictness comes greater reward for those that are faithful in their teaching, but that is a stern warning. Listen, it's a noble calling to use your tongue to proclaim the word of God. But such a calling comes with great responsibility. Now, here's what else I find very interesting is that James warns that though warns teachers or those that would want to teach or use their tongues to teach right after a discussion about faith and works. That was last week's message. He has a lengthy discussion on faith and works. And the very first thing he says is not many of you. The very first thing he says after that is not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why is that important? I can tell you right now that one of the key ways in which someone will use their tongue to teach error is in regard to the nature of faith and works. Getting the gospel right means getting the relationship between faith and works right. Again, as James pointed out last week, the person who claims to have faith but has no works, that person has dead, unsaving faith. They are not Christians. Listen, the early church was already full of teachers who were messing up the relationship between the law and the gospel. It was so bad that when Paul was writing to Timothy, he wrote these words, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. Now listen to what it says. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So James, right from the very start, offers a warning to those that would set themselves up to use their tongues to proclaim the glories of God. If you're not careful... Your tiny little itty bitty tongue can be used to teach really, really big, bad theological error. Think about how tiny the tongue is and how big some of the false religions are in the world today. Make that comparison. Think about how tiny the tongue is 
and how big some of the false religions in the world are today. Some of the, the false religions in the world today are massive, and yet they started on the tongue of one man at some point in history. It's crazy. You want to know what that is a powerful example of? Little things often having great, great power. Now here's where it gets really practical for us. To drive home his point, James provides for us one of the most common ways our tiny little itty bitty tongues can be used in great ways. And are you ready? You are not. You are not because I wasn't when I prepared this message and I got to this section of James. James says, here's a really good example of a little thing often displaying great power. And that's when we use our tongues to, say it with me, boast. When we use our tongues to boast. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Listen, folks, the tongue might be little, but man, can it boast of great things. And listen, of all the things that James could have mentioned at this point, he mentions boasting. And that stings. You know why? Because I'm really, really good at it. I'm really, really good at it. As a matter of fact, I'm so good at it that I'm boasting that I'm good at it right now. Now, I don't know why you're laughing because you're good at it too. You're good at it too. We're all good at boasting. And you want to know why? Because we are, we're sinners. We have a sin nature. And so boasting is part of our nature. You don't have to teach children how to boast, right? What do little children do right from the get-go? I'm better than you. I'm faster than you. I can jump higher than you. We start as little kids. We don't have to teach our kids these things. They boast and brag almost out of the womb, right? But here's the point. Not only is it part of our nature, it's part of what we've been trained to do. I'm an American, so I have been trained to boast since I was a little kid, right? Because as Americans, we're the best, right? Amen? You're boasting. Caught you. I set you up. Yeah, but we, America's number one. America's the best, and we've taught this, and it is. We're a great country, the greatest country, right? And we've been trained. So not only is it in our nature, but we've been trained from a very young age to boast and to brag. I can guarantee you, if you see a man or a woman boasting in himself or herself, it is a man or a woman who either doesn't know the gospel or a man or woman who has lost sight of the gospel. Why do I say that? For it is in the gospel that we learn about the utter depravity of mankind. The Bible goes to great lengths to teach that nothing good whatsoever exists in fallen man. And it is purely by God's grace alone that we have anything, including salvation. And by the way, this is the doctrine of sola gratia or grazie. We are saved by grace alone. What are the five tenets of the Protestant Reformation? We are saved by, say it with me, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the scriptures alone that are our final source of authority. And this is all soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. So this is the doctrine of grace alone. The only thing that any person should ever boast in is boasting in what? The Lord. Boasting in the Lord. What does Jeremiah say? But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Lord does not delight when we as his children boast in ourselves or boast in the things of this world. He delights when we are boasting in him. When we are glorifying and magnifying him. 
Paul says it this way in the New Testament, so that as it is written, let him, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And again in 2 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is why I always like to ask people, name one thing that you have that hasn't been given to you from above. Name one thing that you have that hasn't been given to you by the Lord above. You can't. Everything you have, including eternal life, is a gift of God's grace alone. Sola grazie. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. First Corinthians, Paul asks that very question. He says this, what do you have that you did not receive? Name one thing that you have that you did not receive. You can't. If then you received it, which is everything you have, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And by the way, you want a powerful example of how we can use our tongues to boast on a daily basis? You might be sitting here and going, well, I don't boast. I don't boast using my tongue. Yes, you do. I'm about to prove it to you. In a few weeks, we're going to get into James 4 and we're going to run across this passage. Listen to what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Do you know how many times I violate that passage every week? Probably 10,000. Hey, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to do that. I'm doing this next week. I'm going to do that next week. Oh man, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Not for one moment submitting any of those plans to the Lord or even thinking about him. That's arrogance. That's boasting. It's crazy. I know this truth inside and out, yet time and again, I find myself using my tongue, my little itty bitty tongue to boast, whether it's boasting about the things I have or boasting about the things I've done or boasting about the things I'm going to do. When the scriptures are abundantly clear, all of my boasting should be in one person and one person alone. Who is that? It is Christ. It is the Lord. And you know what doctrine that is? Soli Deo Gloria. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the scriptures alone, not the Pope, not the bishops, not the pastors that are your final source of authority. Who's your final source of authority? The scriptures. And all of this is soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. We lift all glory to God. This is what we as Protestants do. We don't praise the Pope. We don't praise bishops. We don't praise the church or councils or anything else. We glorify God. He is our king. He is the one that we direct all glory to at all times and in all ways. This is what we do. You know, the people of this world are regularly using their tiny little itty-bitty tongues to boast and brag. And you know what that means? That means that you and I have a huge opportunity to use our little itty-bitty tongues to boast in the things of the Lord. The people of this world are going to use their little itty-bitty tongues to boast in the things of this world to brag about the things of this world, the things they have and the things they're going to do. And it is at that opportunity that you and I are presented with a golden opportunity. And that opportunity is to use our little itty bitty tongues blah, 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 for great and mighty purposes, to direct people solely Dale Gloria to the glory of God alone, to direct them to God, to turn their attention to God. When they're boasting, when people are boasting in the politics and in the economy and in our armies, and in the things of this world, when they're boasting in their possessions or their education and all of these things, we are going to boast in the Lord. Amen? We are going to turn people to Christ. We are going to turn people to the cross. We are going to boast that God sent his one and only son into the world to die for the sins of man. We are going to boast that God has created us and has a plan for us. We are going to boast and give him 
all the glory at all times and in all ways. This is what we are Christians, as we as Christians are going to do. So here's the deal. We are about to be dismissed and you are going to go back out into the world. This gives you an opportunity to do something awesome, to use this little itty bitty thing that God has put into your mouth for amazing and awesome purposes to bring glory to God. So are you ready for the challenge? Okay. I thought after all that, you'd be ready. Here's the challenge. I want to challenge you to seek to boast in the Lord five times a day for the next seven days. I want you in the, here's the challenge is today, before the sun sets, try to find five times in any given conversation you're in to say glory to God, or let's give the glory to God, or praise God. So you can do it a million different ways that you can give glory to God. Listen, if we all boast five times a day for seven days, if a person boasts five times a day in the Lord for seven days, how many times is that? 35. I'd say there's probably 400 people in this room right now. 400 times 35 is what? It's a lot, whatever it is. <laughs> it's like 15,000, 20,000. Think about that. Just with the people in this room right now, if we boast in the Lord five, just five times a day for the next seven days, the group of people that are sitting in here right now will have boasted in the Lord upwards of 20,000 times right here in the Valley of the Sun. Is that amazing? That's your assignment. Let's get busy. Let's use this thing to glorify God. Amen? Be back here next week. Number two, taming the tongue. It's just getting started. Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we leave today, God, we are reminded that little things often have great power. No greater example of this, Father, than that tongue that you've put into each of our mouths. Lord, may under the power of your Holy Spirit, may we use our tongues to glorify you. We're going to go back into a world right now, Father, that is boasting and bragging and using their tongues in all sorts of worldly ways. And may we shine as a people who use our tongues to bring glory to you and to you alone. Soli Deo Gloria, God. We lift all the glory and praise to you. So God, give us those opportunities. Give us eager hearts to proclaim your praise, your excellencies. Thank you for each person that is here today. Thank you for the offering that we'll receive on the way out. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And the church said, with one tongue, amen.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866 8999. That's 602 866 8999. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. One evening, I received an urgent email from a high school principal inviting all the parents to an informational meeting at the school auditorium. The topic concerned serious problems of drug use among students in public schools. I attended this meeting with one purpose in my heart. I desired to hear a timely word for this generation, so I would know how to pray for them more effectively. The speaker was a dynamic and knowledgeable communicator. She presented topics on all the different types of drugs and the serious repercussions of using each drug. What stood out to me the most was her sincere love and passion to fight for this generation and their well-being. Suddenly, I heard a timely word I had been waiting for when she said, The head of these drug companies target our youth and college students. The definition of the word target in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is something or someone marked for attack. My brothers and sisters, do you know that the kingdom of darkness has come to attack, kill, and destroy our next generation? If people of this world are fighting for their well-being, how much more, as God's people, do we need to fervently war in intercession for them? 
The Greek word for intercede is huperendungshano, which means to plead and to make petition for. The word intercede refers to the Holy Spirit interceding in every scene of our lives so we can come in line with the Lord's eternal purpose. This world has no answer or hope to save this generation, but we do because our mighty God is the only answer, and He already gave us the greatest and most powerful weapon to war in intercession, His living word. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9-12. through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's unite our hearts together and pray for this generation. God, we come before you humbly and cry out for the next generation. Lord, fill their hearts with holy desperation to seek your face and to know you as their heavenly Father. Draw each one to yourself and cause every heart to be receptive to the message of the gospel. Create in them clean hearts and fill them with pure thoughts and divine hunger for your truth. Fill them with holy passion to do what pleases you and to walk in the ways of true righteousness, maturing in the rich experience of knowing your unconditional love and your living word. Lord, guide them to make wise decisions in choosing godly friendships that will build them up and encourage them to follow you. Protect them from destructive relationships that would bring them harm and lead them astray from you and your truth. Bring them Christian educators and mentors with godly principles who value their work as a holy calling and have a sincere passion and desire to impact this generation with integrity, righteousness, and true knowledge and to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Empower this generation by your spirit and wisdom so they will be firm in their convictions to withstand all peer pressure. We pray for your protection over them against forces of darkness that have invaded many of this generation through addictions to drugs, alcohol, media, video games, and pornography. In your powerful name, we declare that they are free from these addictions. Father, by the power of your precious blood, deliver them from their pain, depression, hopelessness, and thoughts of suicide, and fill them with your power of resurrection life, hope, truth, and freedom. 
deliver them from the ungodly influences in our media, entertainment, and culture that strive to convince our young people that homosexuality is an acceptable and alternative lifestyle. God, open the eyes of their hearts and let the light of your truth flood in. Shine your light on the hope you're calling them to embrace and reveal to them the glorious riches you are preparing as their inheritance. Lord, raise them up as your wise leaders who will bring cultural transformation and revival to seven spheres of influence in government, media, arts and entertainment, business, education, religion, and family. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. 
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.